Welcome to Inside the Nest, the official podcast of Kennesaw State University Athletics. If you missed our first podcast, it's with Izzy Palermo of Kennesaw State Women's Lacrosse. She has an outstanding story of how she has gone through being a student athlete along with overcoming type 1 diabetes and what her daily battle looks like and what her future holds. It really motivated me. I think it's going to motivate you too. As part of Inside the Nest and our expansion of the podcast, we're touching on everything related to KSU Athletics, and today we'll get to know Brian Katrick. Before we do that, though, we'd like to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by The Indy, Kennesaw's newest student house community. The Indy is now accepting applications for the fall of 2020. Visit www.livetheindy.com for more information. See what elevated student housing looks like. So Brian Katrick, it's a familiar voice. If you tuned in to watch KSU football, you've heard his voice. He's been the TV broadcaster on ESPN3 and ESPN Plus for the Owls. He's done basketball work as well. His primary job, though, is to be the voice of the PGA Tour on Sirius XM. Brian got his start at Kennesaw State in the early 90s. He had a couple of big breaks that he capitalized on, and his career has skyrocketed into the world of golf and golf radio. Brian has gone on to work every single event imaginable within the sport of golf. He's been at the Masters. He has an incredible call of the 2019 Masters, and if you remember that one, that was the Tiger Woods comeback win. So we get to talk to him more about what that was like, his experience, and his thoughts on the call as well. We find out how he broke into local radio in Atlanta, actually replacing Dan Patrick and almost embarrassing himself in front of an Atlanta Braves superstar. We also get his thoughts on what's ahead for golf during the coronavirus pandemic and what the future might hold. So without further ado, let's go Inside the Nest with Brian Catrick. Brian, thanks for joining us. How are you holding up through the current state of affairs? Well, Nolan, it's great to be on with you, first of all. And uh, I mean, I'm doing great. Our family is great. Uh, the game of golf is, is an interesting spot because, you know, it's, it's a game you can actually play fairly easily while social distancing. Uh, playing it at the professional level causes other challenges and, and there's travel involved, so... The professional game, it's on its ear. The recreational game is, uh, is you can't say unaffected because everything's, everything's affected, but the, professional, the, the uh, recreational game is hanging in there, I guess. I ask everyone this question on Inside the Nest, but where were you when things escalated? Not kind of when you, you first heard the news of uh, the coronavirus, but where were you when the golf world where you're in came to a halt? Um, well, I was at the Players' Championship, so Ground Zero gets gets overused because I went through this, you know, a similar situation with, with September 11th, and there was a Ground Zero, and this is so much different than that on so many levels, but, uh, but I was at the biggest golf tournament of the week by far, one of the biggest of the year. It's the second strongest field of the year, and, uh, and we had done a full day of work at the Players' Championship. So we're in bed Thursday, already had decided to rendezvous at a certain time the next morning so we could all head out to the golf course because as we left things on Thursday, we were still going to play. They they were still going to continue the tournament on Friday, albeit with no fans in the stands, which was an adjustment from Thursday, Um, but we were still going. And then you could just kind of see the dominoes start to fall. I believe the NBA had, had canceled the night before. I believe the NCAA canceled that night that Thursday night then there was a rumor that there was a tour announcement coming then there was the announcement itself and then there was all the fallout because just because they're not playing doesn't mean there's not going to be some production work to do and here we are doing this Um, so all of a sudden you know from from laying in bed somewhere in the nine o'clock hour which was fairly responsible for me you know, now you're up well past midnight trying to figure out what's going to what's going to come next and the end result was we're done, just drive home. 
what was the reaction amongst your colleagues and any golfers that you reached out to? Uh, you know, it's been mixed. Again, the game, because you can play this game and social distance, uh, that that part is going fine. But I don't know, even now, as you and I are talking about it, that anybody's got a full handle on things. It really just, you know, you if you want to go look for, for good news, well, that's, good news is hard to find, but you can probably find something. If you want to go look for catastrophic news and, and indications that the world is going to come to an end, well, those news sources are out there too. So really the perspectives vary based on who you're talking to and, and you know, what their attitude is. Back at the players in Ponte Vedra, at the moment where it looked like we're going to continue play, but there's not going to be any fans, how did that change or did it change at all your preparation for that next day? No, not from uh, just just not having fans. There was no preparation change other than, you know, that we, we at that point, we, we already knew we were in for an odd week. And mm-hmm. then I, I referenced I referenced the September 11th week, which that, that happened on a Tuesday. And there was a golf tournament scheduled for Thursday. And really, at no point Tuesday or Wednesday did we think there was going to be any golf being played on Thursday. There weren't folks that had gotten there yet. So, uh, so you know, you, you kind of knew. But even if, even then, you thought, well, if we did do something, you know, we'd try to focus on the golf. Because if we're playing, then we're playing for a reason. Mm-hmm. So that was going to be uh, that was going to be the case. And even then, this is now this is a week ago, as you and I speak. Our understanding of what was going on with this with this virus wasn't what it is now. Our understanding now isn't what it will be a couple of days from now. I, in my lifetime, I've never seen a, a story evolve so quickly from hour to hour as this one has over the last couple of weeks and months. How has that affected you and your job with the PGA Tour Network on SiriusXM? Well, it's true. We continue to be <laughs> continue to be fluid. So SiriusXM has has a they have studios all over the country. Big main studio in New York, another main studio in Washington D.C. Um, obviously, in the entertainment business, you want to keep going as much as possible, but we can't put people in those studios safely. So the decision was made, I think, rightfully so. Let's keep everybody safe. Let's get the people. Uh, let's let's not put people in in these little boxes if they don't have to be. Luckily, we have over 200 channels. This is going to sound like a promo now, but we have over 200 channels, and most of them are commercial-free, and they can be programmed remotely. I mean, they're music channels. So, so that sort of stuff can be done without people getting into a room. The talk, the talk is obviously a problem, mm-hmm. and you know, the decision was made for us uh, the week after the Players' Championship, so it was, it was Monday of the week you and I are talking, um, that we would go dark as a channel because there was no golf being played. That decision lasted one whole day before <laughs> there was an outcry from the subscribers that said, hey, we need some normalcy here, and if you can get our guys to us, uh, no matter what they're talking about, we'd like to hear them because it's a distraction from everything else. And keep in mind, our delivery system is not its not like this one. It's not a podcast. While you can get our shows on demand through the app, and there's a nice SiriusXM app plug, um, we're still being delivered you know, through the radio in our normal time slots. So as people are in their cars getting in and out, uh, we're still where they where they always found us. And that was very important. And that was the decision that was made. So as we speak, we were, we are continuing to tape shows. Now, we're not live. We're taping the show a couple hours ahead of time, simply because it takes that long to get the show then into the computer and turned around and loaded up so it can be delivered at, at 5 p.m. Eastern. But at this point in time, we are still delivering fresh shows every day. And I imagine it's got to be difficult to truly host a show without being across the desk from your counterpart. Because here in a podcast, for the most part, one person asks the questions, the other person answers. There's some dialogue in there, but that's a straight format. But trying to carry a conversation with someone and not being able to read facial cues, hand gestures, etc., is that made it a little difficult at times? I know I would struggle a little bit. Well, the funny thing about that, Nolan, is my partner is just the best partner I've ever had for this talk show. And his, his name is John McGinnis, and he played on the PGA Tour for about 10 years. And he and I traveled the world together. We started – the PGA Tour radio story is long and, and wild, but 
the satellite PGA Tour radio story started back in kind of 2004 or 2005, and John and I traveled the, the tour together. He basically taught me how to travel the tour. His, his perspective being from a player uh, and mine being from a homebound broadcaster, I got to learn all the airports and the restaurants and the hotels <laughs> and, and where are we parking and, and the whole nine yards and, oh, we fly into this airport versus that airport. So this is a guy that taught me that. And I started learning that from him and spending a ton of time with him. We were spending all day together, four and five days a week. And we just had a great camaraderie. Then you fast forward to our talk programming started in 2009. His talk show started in 2010. They put us together in about 13 uh, or 14. And we've been doing this talk show together ever since. What that, what that winds up being is, I know him like the back of my hand. He knows me like the back of his hand. I don't actually have to see him because we've done countless thousands of hours together in each other's presence. We can actually do a show similar to you and I are doing here, uh, and we don't know each other near as well, but there, there are some protocols that you know as a broadcaster and, and some that I know, and then I just happen to know the man very well. So, uh, And he's very, very funny. So the few times that we do step on each other or there's something that goes wrong, He's really good at making light of it, and uh, and we have a good time with it. So we need to put y'all two on the newlywed show and see how well you do, right? We would win. There's no <laughs> question. We would. I mean, there's no. There isn't a couple that could touch us. So uh, we're gonna backtrack and go from your time at Kennesaw State to where you are now. But you you brought something up that I gotta ask when you talked about going to different airports and rental cars and trips. Do you have any crazy travel stories that you like to share amongst all your travels through the years? Uh, we're big fans of uh, of a certain rental car company that allows you to choose your own car. They have an entire aisle of cars that you can choose from, and it's a specifically colored aisle, and that's their promotion. I don't want to promote them, but uh, they're great folks. And uh, John always lets me drive. My parents were race car drivers, so he's, uh, for whatever reason, he lets me drive. Plus, he also knows where we're going, but he'd rather sit over in the passenger seat and dictate where we're going than drive to where we're going. So so I'm the driver. He's the navigator. And uh, but, but this particular time, we decided we would let him pick the car. So we come down at the rental car center in Phoenix. requires a shuttle bus and, you know, it just adds time. However, sometimes the presentation can be fantastic, and that's exactly what was the case in Phoenix. So you take the escalator that's assigned to your certain car company. So you get down, and it, it lands on that floor, and it's all the cars from that company. And in this case, we get to pick one from all of them. And it was like the spotlight was shining down on this one. It was a bright orange, four-door, massive Hummer. And there was no question that was going to be our car for the week. And John picked it. I didn't even have to. He knew I wanted it. I knew he wanted it. He just went right over to it. And we saw it about halfway down the escalator. And then we're looking down the escalator to how many people are in front of us and are any of them going to go over and get the orange Hummer. And sure enough, we got it. And uh, we had a blast in it. Well, hopefully there's another opportunity. You can get a selfie with a, a bright orange Hummer and we can put that out in the future. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that's not much of a travel story. I, I remember we, you know, in Scotland, I mean, I go over to cover the British Open. They don't have, uh, I, don't, I don't know what they're doing to monitor speed, but one of the things they were doing was they had speed cameras. But in this case, it was one camera, and then, and then you had a certain amount of time before you could pass the other camera. So if you stopped in between cameras, and they're, they're a couple miles apart, if you stopped to take pictures or never went past the other camera, you could be doing 100 miles an hour up and down that road. And our house was not on the other side of the camera. So that entire week of, uh, I believe that was Royal Liverpool, I had no problems with the speed cameras driving in this little bitty crappy rental car on the wrong side of the road, <laughs> shifting with my left hand. Uh, and I always wondered what a ticket show up in the mail. And here we are all these years later. That was 2008. And it hasn't shown up yet, Nolan, so I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Okay, we will not send this over to Scotland. I'll put a geofence over there so they cannot listen in. Have you ever struggled with driving on the other side of the road? Because uh, I did that in Ireland and may or may not have sideswiped a parked car. Yeah, they well, the, first of all, you probably did that because the roads are, are wide enough for about half of one car. <laughs> that, that's the reason. <laughs> and they expect to put three cars wide in there with cars parked on the side of the streets. 
The only problem I've ever had was in the Bahamas where you also drive on the other side of the road from here in the States. So you're driving, uh, you're driving on the left, but they have American cars. So the steering wheel is on the left and you're driving on the left and the problem becomes at the intersections. It's not hard to kind of stay in your lane when the other cars are over there on your right. But when you come to an intersection, you don't know which way to look first. You don't know which lane you're turning into and you're sitting in a spot that's very comfortable that's rough because I don't mind sitting on the wrong side of the car because it's a constant reminder, hey, remember what you're doing. But when I'm sitting in a car that's fairly comfortable, that gets a little bit hairy. Yeah, I, I cannot put myself in your shoes there because I would probably end up with a, a massive insurance claim coming my way. Get, so, get the insurance. Definitely <laughs> get the insurance. Okay. I promise everyone this is not going to turn into a car podcast, but I have to backtrack on something. You said your parents were race car drivers? How did you not end up in their footsteps? It's too expensive. <laughs> so you chose golf, which isn't expensive at all. Oh, uh, golf chose me. Uh, they, racing, they were racing uh, sports cars, SCCA cars in South Florida in the late 60s and early 70s. And uh, I mean, it wasn't all that expensive. It wouldn't. It's more expensive now, but based on inflation, it was just as expensive to them. Then they were they were single married a single married couple that had double income and this is what they decided to do and they were having a blast with it and then uh, they had me and they, they kept going for a while as a matter of fact the only race my mom ever won she was actually pregnant with me no because way. you know this was 1972 and those are the decisions we made Nolan I wouldn't be surprised if she wasn't smoking while she was winning the race <laughs> pregnant with me with just a lap belt on I mean we just did, we didn't think the same way that we do now safety wise and then once my sister came along a couple years later, they uh, there were other things to spend the money on, so racing went away. But but it was in you know I, I enjoyed it. We always watched it, uh, and you know my dad always had an interesting perspective on it, having been there, having built engines and tried to work around technical restrictions. And racing back in the day was all about cheating. You know it was all about who could cheat the best. So that was always my perspective on it, and now it's way more regulated. But now they're just cheating at a more expensive level. But yeah, it's too uh, too expensive for uh, for me to get in. I, you know, golf is is expensive enough. I can't afford both. Well, technically, you are a race winning golfer. Technically, you won that race when you were in the womb of your mother. So you should add that to your I, bio. I like the way you think, Noah. I didn't even <laughs> think about that. So, all right, let's get back into the golf side of things. So you started out at then Kennesaw State College, KSC, back in the fall of 90, and you were interested in becoming a student athlete, but not with golf. There was a baseball trout in there. Tell us about that. Well, it was uh, – Mike Sansing won't remember it because he – it didn't last long enough to get him involved. He was the coach at the time, and and I loved all sports growing up, and – you know, could, could throw the ball left-handed, first of all, so that helps, and uh, was very accurate, and was well-rested. And, and growing up, I was a year young. I started school in, in Florida, so I was a 17-year-old college freshman. So playing for high school teams was hard because I was a year young, I was a year small, and in this case, I had absolutely no velocity. But now we're, we're, we're at college, and it's time to take a look, and maybe these guys will see something that nobody else had ever seen, and so I fill out the paperwork and I go to the tryout and uh, you and I actually should have done this in that uh, in the Owls bullpen at uh, at the ballpark there because that's where that's where my baseball career. <laughs> so the pitching coach at the time I don't remember who it was. Uh, he's given me a catcher. One of the catchers on the teams is over there, and he says, uh, "All right, give me twenty five fastballs and twenty five curveballs." All right, you know, let you let me warm up and. 25 fastballs, 25 curveballs, and he's standing there with his arms crossed, smacking on the gum. And so I, unco I unfurl 24 of the best fastballs I've ever thrown in my life. I mean, the, the mitt is hardly moving. My, my location is perfect. And after 24 of the best fastballs in my life, the pitching coach turns around and walks away. He didn't even see the 25th. <laughs> he didn't see any of the curveballs. Because, you know, apparently they weren't interested in 67-mile-an-hour uh, heat. So baseball was short-lived. Did that kind of create an avenue of space to pursue the broadcasting route? 
Well, I was doing broadcasting the whole time. So okay. I knew from a very early age that, that I wanted to do some sort of broadcasting. And, and it doesn't take long before you realize that that may be harder and, and you may need to do something else. But really, plan A was broadcasting, and there was never a solid plan B. But uh, at the time, I, I was doing – this was also the dawn of cable access. So I had done public address announcing. Any, any microphone I could get my hands on, on in high school, I, I was using that. A lot of a lot of it was just PA work, either for the for the girls' soccer team. I played on the guys' soccer team, or PA work for the basketball team. I didn't make the basketball team, so you know I would love to be the public address announcer. Then we also started doing cable access. This was 1990 and 1991, and basically, if you could get a, a football game or whatever game on tape and get it to the cable head, they had to put it on. So I was working with a guy named Ron Grab, who had figured out a way to get these games on fairly economically. I was a huge part of that because I was able to work for nothing. <laughs> you know, that, that didn't impact the economics. And while I wasn't any good, I was at least good enough to not ruin his show. And you could see what was going on. And, and so the long and short of it was I got a ton of experience. Any game I wanted to do, I was getting to do it. Uh, and we didn't have telestrators and replay machines and, and full-on commercial breaks, but uh, oftentimes I was working with just a dad from the grandstands as as the color analyst. But uh, but I got plenty of experience behind the mic, got to see a lot of great games, got plenty of exposure. So that was going on through 1990 and 91. And that was, at that time, Nolan, that was enough for me to continue to hold out hope. Have you ever stumbled upon any of those old tapes? You ever put those on and, and look back and think of, Wow, how how far we've come! I'm staring at a bunch of them, but I don't know <laughs> that I have a VCR, <laughs> so I think that's the problem. I mean, these tapes are—I uh, don't know that they would. If I, I do have a VCR, but I, I don't know that it would work. And if I put one of these things in there, I don't know if the tape would break or the machine would break. But <laughs> I've got it all, and you know it from you—you've done enough. I would cringe to hear an 18-year-old me trying to work alone on a football game with no spotter and you know no no anything uh, no graphics <laughs> you know just i i believe i would cringe but maybe maybe i'll go check one of them out well if it happens to not work at home i will say will adams our director of uh, video services and richard martin they've been digitizing some stuff in the ksu vault so they've been going through some old vhs's props to whoever used it last that actually remember to rewind the whole thing Remember that was a pain in the butt at Blockbuster when you got the video well, that didn't was, rewind the whole time? It was a 75-cent fine, right? <laughs> they charged it for that. So when was it that you got your first break and you kind of hit that next step? Well, uh, a friend of mine from high school, and since we're, we're being honest here, it was a girlfriend of mine from high school, somebody that I had always been interested in and she was never quite interested in me. Um she comes up twice in this story, which is why, <laughs> why it's important. She was involved in two of the big key moments in my broadcasting career. She calls me up in 1991. This was the fall of 91. The Braves had just completed their run against the Twins. And she tells me that Dan Patrick is leaving 96 Rock. Dan Patrick had worked for CNN. A lot of people know the name Dan Patrick, but they don't remember his days at CNN. That was before ESPN. So he was leaving CNN to go to ESPN. And which he would eventually leave to go to NBC, where he is now. But because of that, he was, do he was doing local sports on 96 Rock with, with Christopher Rude on the morning show, Rude, Love, and Radical. Uh, and he was obviously great because he's Dan Patrick. Well, he was leaving, and they weren't gonna, he wasn't going to be able to continue that gig when he moved to Bristol. ESPN was starting radio. They weren't going to let him do it. So 96 Rock at the time had a contest. And so my friend alerted me, hey, they're having this contest uh, you're a sportscaster, you need to call in. It was the Replace Dan Patrick contest. So uh, so I, I try out. My gig at the time was you know doing a sports update, but I was mixing in impressions, and none of them were any good, but they were at least entertaining, probably because of how bad they were. Um, but there Who were, are you there trying was to impersonate? Well, I was doing Keith Jackson. I had done <laughs> some, uh, some Jack Buck. I think I'd done Jack Buck at the time. That, that came up because... Because I, I'd written this whole thing, and the tryout for me 
they, they picked the date for the tryout, and it was at the Cumberland location of Hooters, which is still there. And so I go there, and the routine that I had written included some notes and, and a bit about Ron Gant, who had been, if you remember, in the 91 World Series, uh, Kent Herbeck kind of put a rough tag on him over at first base and basically pulled him off of first base, and they called Ron out, and that was a big pivotal moment. Every one of those games against the Twins was nine hours long. They all went 27 innings, and you know they were all classics. So every play was huge, and the city was living and dying by every second of it. So when Kent Herbeck pulled Ron Gant off of first base, that was awful. So I've got a joke in there about that. And lo and behold, at the Cumberland Hooters, guess who one of the celebrity judges is for the Replace Dan Patrick contest? Ron Gant. He's sitting right there, and I'm about to make fun of him for getting pulled off of first base by Kent Herbeck. I'm going to blame him for costing our city a World Series, and he is sitting. <laughs> Ron Gant's a 30-30 guy. Ron Gant's put together like a brick house. I mean, he's massive, and I'm looking at him, and I'm th and I see that he's sitting there, and I'm still got like another 30 minutes before I go on, and I'm wondering, can I can I write around this? Can I work some sort of new material in? And I can't figure it out for the life of me. So I just decide to do the joke right in front of Ron Gant, and thank goodness he is a good-natured individual. Since then, we've become golf buddies. I've played a ton of golf with him, um, but at the time, I thought he was going to squish me. Instead, his reaction to it probably won me the contest. What did he do? Well, he just laughed, and, and then he started playing with me, and at that point, now we got a back and forth, and, and now, as a broadcaster, a, a back and forth dialogue is way better than a monologue. And so that loosened me up, and the guys got to see me interacting with a member of the Atlanta Braves. That was all of a sudden the other guys that were auditioning there were probably wishing they had that, uh, and it was a complete accident. Uh, I sure didn't plan it. So, so they declared me one of the winners of the contest, and I got to go in and do sports on '96 Rock, and uh, that was a big day. And uh, now the whole contest had already, it was kind of just a sham in that they'd already picked Jeff Hollinger as Dan Patrick's replacement. They just hadn't announced it. They decided to do this, this contest instead. Uh, but that didn't matter to me. And, and by the way, Jeff Hollinger was a heck of a choice. He's, he's an award-winning broadcaster. He's fantastic. He's significantly more qualified than, than anybody else in the contest. So I mean, he had already won. He was doing news and sports at the time. Uh, and it didn't matter to me. Because uh, as an 18-year-old kid, uh, matter of fact, I may not have turned 18 yet by the time this was happening, to be in the mix like that and to get to do something like that was gigantic for my confidence. Hmm. So you're still a college student at this time, correct? Yes. Yeah. As a matter of fact, it was uh, – yeah, I was still – I, I had no – I don't know that I had any credits. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> We hope you're enjoying this Inside the Nest podcast with Brian Katrick, and we would like to take this time to thank our proud partner, Coca-Cola, for being the beverage choice of KSU Athletics events. Coca-Cola, taste the feeling. If you like this podcast and you want to hear more, go on ahead, give us a like, and subscribe to this podcast on however you consume podcasts, whether that's Apple Podcasts, it's on TuneIn, it's on Spotify, it's on Google Play. Whatever it is, we have done our best to comb the landscape of podcasts and make this one available or if you're old-fashioned you don't like any of those apps you just want to go to ksuals.com we got it for you right there so go on ahead and subscribe so you can have this podcast delivered to your device each and every week without further ado let's get back to it this inside the nest with brian catra a fledgling owl on 96 rock doing sports so you're there and you're really establishing yourself with all of these reps. How do we go from at that point of Brian Katrick's career to being introduced to the game of golf and golf broadcasting? How, how did that segue take place? Yeah, so that was my wife. I met my wife through, you know, you, that, that was 91. We got married in 96. So, you know, as a fledgling broadcaster, you're doing plenty of other jobs. And, and one of the odd jobs led me to a connection with, with her and we would never have met any other way and so her family was a golf family she's the daughter of a golf widow uh you know the her dad played golf all the time and that's just what they knew that's golf was kind of the glue that held their family together they had gotten married in myrtle beach they took vacations to myrtle beach so i didn't know golf i didn't care about golf it made no difference to me i mean i was aware of it but 
you know, didn't have the love affair with it like this family did. And when I assimilate into this family, now golf is a big part of it. So what happened was the second phone call from that same young lady that I was interested in high school came in, uh, in, in somewhere in 1997 and informed me, hey, they're starting a sports radio station. You may want to get down there and, and get involved. And this was, of course, 790 The Zone. Uh, 680 The Fan had been going on for a couple of years, and uh, they were starting a rival sports station. So same person makes a phone call. I call down there, and I start. I, I called the first day. I interviewed the second day, and I started on the third day. Um, so that was 97. And, and as that station blossomed, anytime golf came up, I was interested, whereas I wouldn't have been interested had I not been married to my wife and into a golf family. So that station started apparently in April of 97. I'm terrible with years, but I looked it up the other day. April of 97. Tiger won the Masters in April of 97. So as you can imagine, golf broadcasting was kind of one thing before 1997. And then after 97, 98, 99, golf broadcasting became quite a different thing. And by being the young guy that was willing to do these golf projects that nobody cared about, I was able to play my way, coinciding with Tiger, going through his rise in the social consciousness, able to play my way into a pretty good spot. And all of a sudden, you know, by 1999, I wasn't really doing any football games or baseball games anymore. It was all, I was doing all golf. So I'm trying to decide if you were a better broadcaster at the time or a better boyfriend to this girlfriend and then eventually with your wife. I, that's uh, incredible yeah, to have I these never, opportunities. Well, no, I never even – I hardly – me and her, the, the her that made the phone calls, we were never a thing. I wanted to be a thing through high school. <laughs> but like I said, everything I got from her was no except for these two gigantic phone calls that alerted me to situations and – you know, that was that's a pretty good contribution, I'd have to say. Well, that, that just goes to the motto of keep on trying. Even if you get a thousand no's, all you need is one yes, right? Yes. Yeah, so, well, and the timing was exactly <laughs> right. I mean, you've heard that, and that's, that's mm -hmm. definitely true uh, in this business. And the reason, I think, is because you never know what's going to change. And, and the starting of a new sports station brought a bunch of people in. And then and what happened was, again, Nobody was interested in the golf projects. I actually started on the same day that Matt Chernoff started. Uh, we had both made the same phone call on the same day two days earlier. I hmm. called the we, we called the same phone number. I asked for the programming director for WQXI, and I got I got an individual named Ike Newkirk who hired me to be a, a board operator. He asked for the programming director at 790 The Zone. He got a gentleman by the name of Matt Edgar, who's also incredibly talented. Matt Edgar hired Matt Chernoff as, a, as an intern to learn how to produce. We're standing shoulder to shoulder. We had been hired by two different people. I was actually getting paid minimum wage, whereas Matt was volunteering his time. And, and you know, to see where he has come and to see where I have come, we started on the same day, simply got transferred to two different people. And had we both been transferred to the same person, maybe only one of us gets hired and, and only one of us is still doing this. But because of what the way it happened, just so whimsical, here we are all these years later. Well, one thing hasn't changed, Brian, and that's the fact that when you start out in broadcasting, you get paid peanuts. That, that, that thing is that stay consistently. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> From there, you start to learn the game of golf more and you start to grow with the game. You start to play. How long did it take you to, in your estimation, become a good golfer? Well, it took, uh, it took a while. So PGA Tour Radio was based in Atlanta. It was terrestrial at the time. There was no such thing as satellite radio. And there was a crappy golf show in pretty much every city in the country, and I think we had three of them here in this city, and I was doing one of them because of my golf family. And now with Tiger winning, all of a sudden they need help, and they can't afford to, to fly the guy in from some other city that does a good golf show. They need the, the cheap kid from Mableton to drive over. <laughs> and, uh, and so I was more than willing to do that because, as you said, we're working for peanuts. Uh, but it gave me great experience. But what it also did, their offices were in Norcross. I was working with a guy named Greg Powers who also played on the PGA Tour, made over 150 cuts. And we'd get done at 5 or 6 p.m., and we're right near TPC Sugarloaf, where he's a member, and he teaches. So, you know, I'm married at the time, but we have no kids, and, and coming home at dark 30 is no big deal, and she knows that I'm at the golf course. So I'd go to the golf course with Greg, and we'd pound balls 
until dark, three or four nights a week. When you've got a tour player overseeing you and you've got any sort of athletic skill whatsoever, I mean, I was able to get better faster than most people because I had the time and I had the access and I had incredible instruction. So uh, I was able to accelerate the curve because of Greg Powers and and it was nice and you know it culminated I, I find I did get to play in a national championship uh, a few years ago the winner of which gets in the masters uh, which was a, a hell of a, a moment for me because I'm gonna get you know I'm a broadcaster for the masters so to think even you know you know even though I had a one in 270 player chance of, of getting in to think of the contingencies for that week and to think of actually driving down Magnolia Lane as a player as opposed to driving around to the other side of the property as a broadcaster it's pretty special to be there in any capacity but to have that dangled in front of you was pretty heady stuff and I'll I'll, I'll never forget those thoughts did you ever give the internal play-by-play of your golf during that tournament uh, during the mid-am? <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, I was busy looking for golf balls, Nolan. <laughs> Fishing them out of ponds. I never, I never really contended that week. I guess I was still in it after the first day, but uh, hit my second shot, my first shot on the second day, first swing of the day, uh, out of bounds. So you know, at that point, you're you're playing catch up, and as it turns out, I'm just not good enough. <laughs> Has playing the game of golf given you a better appreciation for what the professionals can do week in, week out? Oh, yeah. That, that's what I wound up using it uh, myself is, is I at least have an idea of what a good shot is and what an important moment is and what a hard shot is uh, to, to recreational players because I was one. Even the tour players were one at one point. Every, everybody was a recreational player. Every shot's hard, you know, and if you just hit the green from 100 yards, that looks pretty good. And, uh, but the reality of, of what they're going through is certain shots are actually better than others. And I feel like having played it at the national championship level, I at least have a better understanding than most most other people in my chair. Now, most golf broadcasters played the game also on some level, if not professional, than, than otherwise. So... Uh, that's one of the reasons why they know. You don't want to get all excited about a bunker shot to 10 feet if it really wasn't that hard to hit it to 10 feet. Hmm. Uh, but if, if it was impossible and the guy hits it to 20 feet, then you got to know that that was important. And, and it's not just about me getting excited. It's about knowing what to leave room for with my analysts. Say, hey, this guy's going to want to talk about this shot. He's not going to want to talk about that shot because this shot was way harder than that one. And, you know, as the guy that steers the ship, you got to know what to steer around. Well, that's a good interlude to something I want to touch on, and a bit out of order, but uh, you've got it pinned on your Twitter profile. I'll go ahead and, and give you a shout-out with that. Go ahead and give Brian a follow if you haven't already. One of the Westwood One highlights from working the Masters last year and the comeback for Tiger, and it's a beautiful call. Walk us through that call. We're going to sit here and play it, and take us through, in your mind, what makes golf play-by-play over the radio, especially in that moment. So unique. What are you trying to do? Back left hole location. One shot lead. This is in a really good spot if it's the right club. Into the slope. Now it has to come back, and here it comes. Oh, my goodness. Back down the slope. Come on, ball. A foot away. Who are they rooting for out here at 16? The people's champion just got another step closer with a tight tee shot here at hole 16. Well, you, you the, the term, as you know, if you heard, is you want to paint a picture. And... The good news for me there is that everybody knows who this guy is. Everybody knows his story. And I know that I've got a couple thousand willing extras with me there in the patrons. They're, they're going to help me tell this story. I'm just getting goosebumps as I'm telling it to you again. I also know that 90% of our audience actually knows what the 16th hole at Augusta National looks like. I'm not talking about this audience. I'm talking about that audience. If you're listening to the Masters on the radio, you're aware of what this hole looks like. So 
a cursory description, but by this point, we know who it is and we know what it is. So as a broadcaster now from radio, I don't have to do a couple of the nuts and bolts that normally take up your time and, and distract you. I've also sat on that hole now for a lot of years. So that Sunday hole location, you know what a good shot is. You know where the ball has to land. There's a big slope over to the right and behind the hole, and that's where they're trying to land it. The hole is some 15 or 20 feet down to the left, but if you land it in just the exact right spot, it'll come down the slope and it'll get really close. And I'd actually seen two aces earlier that day. Uh, a couple of years ago, we had seen three in the same day. So we know where the magic spot is there at 16. So here's Tiger trying to put the cap on this on this gigantic thing, you know, the comeback of a lifetime. He's in the lead of the tournament. By the way, my other hole is 15. So he's just birdied 15. He's in the lead. Now he's got the honor on 16. I've been sitting there for, for a whole lot of my broadcast career. I know where the spot is. He knows where the spot is. He hits this shot. I see that it's on a pretty good line. I, at this point, I've been sitting there for, you know, three or four hours also that day. So I know what the wind's doing. I know exactly where the spot is that day. And this ball's heading for it. So once it lands in the slope, all I had to tell you was that it's, it's in the right spot. You know, it needs to, what, did it get to the right spot or not? Then is it coming down the slope? Because, yes, it is. All right. Into the slope. Now it has to come back, and here it comes. Oh, my goodness. Back down the slope. Then I just let the people, I let the patrons start rooting. Now, I'm not sure, depending on what mix you hear, in my headset, it was deafening. Hmm. And one of the basic rules of broadcasting is if the fans are going to do your work for you, don't scream over them. Just let them do your work for you because everybody on the radio is going to know what's going on. And at one point, I even get caught up in it, and I yell, come on, ball. Come on, ball! Because, you know, it's it's just coming down the slope. And, and as it turns out, if you watch the video feed of it, Tiger bends over and starts looking at it. And at the exact same time, <laughs> he's saying, come on, ball. Because he knows it's in the right spot, and I know it's in the right spot, and all the patrons know it's in the right spot, and everybody's losing their minds because if that ball had gone in, I'm not sure they would have been able to continue the golf tournament. <laughs> and this is the Masters. So to hit it down there, you know, I let the fans tell the story. It finally stops rolling. It's a foot away. I tell you that. Again, I'm trying to let the fans and the, and the, the roars and the patrons tell the story. In my headset, it was very obvious. I think actually we had, we had audio limiters on the broadcast so that you can't quite hear the crowd as loud as it really was in reality. But it was one of my favorite moments ever to be associated with, let alone to call. And I'll give you one more. Um, my son was standing right next to me, Nolan. Mm. And he, uh, you know, I'm, I'm getting choked up telling you the story. He had never seen a hole in one before. And he saw Justin Thomas's from earlier in the day. And he was standing right next to me. And he got to soak that in. And that's, uh, that's pretty strong. What a moment. Uh, where did that weekend rank in all of your time covering golf? Well, I mean, that's it. I've, uh, you know, Tiger's got, Tiger's got 15 majors. I've worked probably all of them in some capacity. I've, I've called shots of probably uh, 12 or 13 of the 15. Uh, there were various broadcast rights that have been jumbled around, and so I've missed them from a play-by-play -play standpoint every once in a while, but Nothing tops that. Again, having my son there, having the comeback elements of it, all those years since the 2008 U.S. Open, everything that got said about Tiger, everything that got written. And, oh, by the way, you know, here's a guy that's largely responsible for the success of my career. It's not just mine. It's, it's if you're a golf broadcaster or a professional golfer and you don't know that that guy's the reason why you're making some money, then you're just not paying attention. So for it to be that guy in that moment just – made it even more surreal. So uh, I would say uh, that was probably it. And, and again, to have Henry standing there listening, he's, he's got, he's got a headset on and he's listening and you know, you, you can't top that. Nolan, that's it. Did you think years prior with everything Tiger went through that that moment was going to happen? Uh, various times. Well, yes and no. 
I thought he had majors in him, but and, and so if, if you thought he had more majors in him, then you didn't think we would see the gigantic comeback moment. You know, if that happens three years later, people remember he he had his his big his big scandal in two thousand nine. Mm-hmm. Uh, he came back in the Masters in two thousand ten. This was four months later. He comes out five months later. He comes back in two thousand ten. He ties for fourth. You know, if, if it was that week that he won, then I don't think we all feel the same way. But then all of a sudden, here we are 11 years later, 12 years removed from his last major, and it feels differently. So so by the time we got to that, you know, I mean, I, I didn't know what I felt. But, but the reason why he wasn't winning was, was personal. It was also injury-wise. It was physical. Uh, at one point, it may have been skill-based. He couldn't practice enough. He wasn't good enough, much like me in the mid-am. <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of it was multi-tiered as to why he wasn't competing. Uh, and all of the while, you thought if he could just clear this one thing up, he'd start winning again. It just took so long for all that to actually happen. If you want to hear more stories like this and have this delivered to your device each and every week, go on ahead and subscribe via your favorite podcast outlet. We've made it available across the spectrum. We'd also like to take a moment and thank our healthcare partner, Wellstar Health System. At Wellstar, their mission is to enhance the health and well-being of every person they serve. Their vision is to deliver world-class healthcare to every person, every time. Let's wrap it up. A couple fun stories left with Brian Katrick as we go Inside the Nest. What was your first master's experience? Uh, I went with a friend of mine named Steve Stone Stonecipher in 1998. He was working at 790 The Zone at the time, and uh, and he had tickets. And he decided because I guess I was the golf guy, he he decided he would allow me to come with him on one of the days. And we went up going on Sunday, and that was the year that Marco Mira won. So Marco Miro wins with birdies at 17 and 18, I'm pretty sure. And, and we missed it because there was, it was Fred Couples and there was one other player that was, that was tied, maybe David Duvall. Um, but O'Meara, O'Meara needed to birdie 18, otherwise we were going to a playoff. So Steve and I went down the hill. Instead of coming up the hill to the 18th green, we went down the hill to the 10th green because we were waiting for a playoff. And we heard the roar from up the hill, and everybody knew what that meant. That meant that O'Meara had made it, and he had won, and we had to walk back up the hill, and we weren't going to see any more golf. <laughs> That's what that meant. <laughs> so from then to where we are now and, and everything in between, who have been some of your favorite golfers to interview? Oh, I would say most of them. They are, uh, they're just cool dudes. I think for the most part, they all get that uh, – that they've gotten to play a game for a living. Tiger is fantastic. Uh, Cause Tiger's got a wicked sense of humor that is not really allowed to be on display. He showed it mm. in that, G- that famous GQ interview all those years ago when he was a kid, it was 97. Uh, and they burned him and his reputation took a hit. And, and so he went into the cocoon and, and, you know, that's why he was so conservative and so sheltered all these years. But, now everybody that's had something nasty to say about him has said it. You've already, everybody in the world has already said the worst thing they're going to say about Tiger Woods, and it's pretty liberating for him <laughs> to see him to walk around now and whatever you're going to say about him, he's already heard it, and he's probably heard worse. So, so he's really funny. Uh, he's funny. He's not really funny on the mic, but he's funny before and after, and he's he's fun to hang around with. I've got a chance to hang out with Greg Norman a little bit. Uh, I've been doing his show with him the last year, and and this is a guy that was the absolute top of the game in between Jack Nicklaus and Tiger Woods, and he's the number one player in the world, and he's making money on and off the golf course. He's kind of bridging the careers of both of those guys. He's doing endorsements. He's doing businesses, and this guy's got – remember, President Bill Clinton blew out his knee while the sitting president, at when he was hanging out, staying at Greg Norman's house. This is a guy that has a sitting president as a house guest. He's got some stories, Nolan, and uh, <laughs> I enjoy chatting with him. So uh, part of being a broadcaster is the storytelling aspect, of whether it's in a way of painting a picture and play-by-play or is hosting a show, conducting an interview, or simply uh, reliving a certain story. What are 
some stories that maybe you haven't had the opportunity because the conversation hasn't dictated it or it's not the right setting uh, that you haven't told and maybe you'd like to tell. Is there anything that you haven't done in a podcast or a show that you think is a great story that you haven't told yet? I know I'm making you, I'm really putting you on the spot and making you think here. Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think, you know, I let the situation generally dictate and, uh, and I've got these, these, you know, these mountains of stories and you know, what, what, what Nathan and I will talk about during a football game. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't tell a lot of stories during the football game that I'm drawing from a different bank than I would during a golf tournament. And then you draw from a different bank during a talk show. And then you'll hear during a podcast Obviously, we just we're just sitting back shooting the breeze. That's great. So, yeah, I don't, uh, you know, I, I really have to think about that. I I don't know off the top of my head of of a great story that I haven't told. Um, and in my mind, whether it's a great story, it may be a great story in my mind. It's not it's not a great story in someone else's mind. I think I disappointed people with the travel stories, honestly. But nobody wants to hear people complain about traveling. Well, that just means you're due for a great one this coming year. Yeah. We did go to the Ryder Cup, and uh, I was working with Michael Breed, who's a famous golf instructor, and he's a, he's a super – he's a character that's impossible to keep down. He's got, he's got all kinds of energy. And it was the first time I'd ever met his wife, and she's just like him. They're both type A personalities. They go a million miles an hour. Well, she had spent some time living in Germany. So once again – we, we land in London, and we're going to drive to Cardiff in Wales. It's going to be about an hour and a half or two hours on the wrong side of the road. And we put Carrie Breed in charge of picking out the rental car, and she goes out and finds us a manual shift Volkswagen. And she once again, she decides, I'm going to be the driver over on the right-hand side of the car this time. She's going to be the co-driver in the left-hand side. Michael, poor Michael. Uh, was scared to death. He is cowering in the back seat, and at one point just <laughs> laid down across the back seat and covered up his head because he couldn't bear to watch. Carrie has lived in Manhattan for the last 20 years. Uh, she is an aggressive Manhattan driver, has aggressive Manhattan personality. We're, we're shifting gears. There's a lot of times when she would grab the gear shift, and she's shifting gears because it's in between us. We're driving in and out of London traffic on the wrong side of the road in this Volkswagen. And, and again, I loved it. She loved it. Her poor husband hated it. But lo and behold, we made it to Cardiff without scratching that car. Not even a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of travel and uh, events coming up, this is a very open-ended question, but what do you think the rest of the golf schedule holds for 2020? Well, here's my big problem. First of all, nobody knows. Uh, because we don't know when the coronavirus is going to get under control. Mm -hmm. um, and the, everybody, again, you can go get whatever opinion you want on that from whatever news source you want. You want good news, you can find it. You want bad news, you can find it. Um, so we got to just assume that they're going to get it under control. And let, let's say it's in it's in 30 days or, or 60 days. Well, if it's in one of those time frames, then we'll, we'll play some golf. It uh, looks like the Masters is going to be postponed until the fall. Uh, so the problem for me is that golf and football have lined up very well over the years. About the time golf finishes, football picks up. Well, mm -hmm. now it looks like there's going to be some some football games being played at the same time as some pretty important golf tournaments. So I've got to really hope that that this year the stars line up. And uh, you know, it's 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 really too early to root at this point in time. We don't. I mean, we we're still canceling tournaments and postponing things. So we're we're not really putting things back on the schedule yet at this point. Hmm. Well, we certainly hope that the stars do align for you and KSU and golf as well. So, in the meantime, can I also put you on the spot again? Sure. I, I've I have failed you. I'm <laughs> 0 for two here, Nolan. <laughs> well, hey, we're going back to your baseball days. Three strikes, right? Okay. Do you ever, being from the area, do you ever have an opportunity to? play around with a fan i know you have an extremely busy schedule and you're on the road a lot but maybe over the next month or so with social distancing is that something that would be of interest to you of uh, ksu fan tuning in the podcast today and going out and making sure we all stay six feet from each other out on the links i would be happy to do that i have run into some folks from time to time uh they weren't necessarily fans or they didn't know they were fans but i mean 
you know, I'm, I'm, I do a lot of golf. So if we're playing golf, there's a good chance that, that someone in the group has consumed some sort of a product that I've, I've been involved with. Um, and if they haven't, I'm happy to point out to them how famous I actually am. <laughs> but uh, what you're suggesting, I would be thrilled to do. I hope we continue to get to do it. You talked about social distancing. Uh, golf has gotten a pass to this point. It appears to continue to adhere to all the guidelines as they've been laid out. And if that continues to be the case, uh, I would be thrilled to get out there and, and meet and play and, and do whatever. It's the best thing about the game. Mm-hmm. Well, I can tell you this. I would be great at social distancing on the golf course. Well, that'd be fantastic. I will not be anywhere six feet close to you at all. You could probably go 60, maybe 600, depending on how far back it's going to take me to get through 18. But yes, I think that's a great point. I've seen that from others in the KSU community promoting the game of golf, especially during this time. And Brian, I want to leave you with this. I want to give you uh, an open floor here. Is there anything related to giving play-by-play or broadcasting the game of golf or being associated with this sport, being associated with Kennesaw State as well, that you think somebody listening to this podcast should know? So we're at Pebble Beach, and I'm working with Jim Huber, uh, a great Atlanta broadcaster. Uh, and I, I learned an awful lot from him traveling traveling over the years. But Jim Huber was a legend and had great, great, broad, had great pipes and a great awareness. So we're at Pebble Beach, and I'm a young whippersnapper broadcaster, and I know every fact about every player in the field, and I, I know every fact about every shot that's being hit. Just ask me. I couldn't wait to run my mouth and talk about the things I was seeing because I was excited to be there, and it was a whole lot of me talking and not a whole lot of me listening. And, and so I take a break because we're on all day long, and, uh, and so you get, you get an hour or so off, and then you come back. During my hour or so off, I happen to walk into the truck, the control room truck, and I'm gonna, you know, I'm, I'm gonna stab Jim Huber in the back here because he's not hardly saying anything, and I get the sense that he doesn't know any of these players and he doesn't know what the shots are, and uh, you know, and here I am, I'm gonna do something devious and I'm gonna say something, you know, not so friendly about this broadcast legend. So and it wasn't gonna be a great moment in my life or career. So I walk into the truck. And they've just come back from break. And it's one sweeping boom shot of the, of the Monterey Peninsula after another. And the waves are crashing. And it's Stillwater Cove. And it's Pebble Beach. It's one of the most photogenic spots on the globe, let alone in golf. And it's just gorgeous. And, and Jim isn't saying anything. And he's open. He knows he's, he's open. His mic is open. We're back from break. They said we're back. And it's just, you know, probably 15 or 20 seconds worth of sweeping, beautiful photography and sounds. And you hear the seagulls and the seals. And Jim just says something along the lines of, ah, that's it. You know, just it was a syllable. And I realized at that moment, man, I should have been shutting up this whole time. He just nailed it. That's exactly what the viewer needed at that point in time. You're not watching this golf broadcast if you don't know who these players are or know or know what these shots are. You don't need this kid telling you what to think every single second. Just sit back and relax and enjoy the pretty pictures. And and I've tried to take that into you know other sports as well. It's much easier when you have cameras. And I've tried to instill that in some of the other young broadcasters I've worked with. There's nobody watching our Kennesaw State football broadcasts that don't know the rules of the game. You know, everybody gets it. You don't have to talk every second. You can let the hits get heard. You can let the whistles blow. You can let the fans react. You don't need to talk all the time. And I learned that in that moment from Jim Huber. By the way, as soon as he did that, I stood there for about another five minutes. I didn't say another word, and I left the truck and never said one bad thing about Jim Huber. (laughs) Thank goodness, because they would have thought I was crazy. Brian, fantastic story, fantastic uh, podcast today. Thank you so much for being a guest and uh, wonderful content today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Nolan, it's an honor to be on with you. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. So there you go. You killed an hour with fantastic stories from Brian Katrick on Inside the Nest. If you like this podcast, we had two more that dropped this weekend. Izzy Palermo of Women's Lacrosse, a student athlete 
that has not only conquered the field, but has conquered type 1 diabetes as well, and her balance between the two and what the future holds for her. And Kendrick Ray, men's basketball alumnus, who is not only tore it up overseas, but he starred in the NBA Summer League as well, and he's seeing what his future holds now through the coronavirus. So those two podcasts are available on our website, ksuals.com slash podcasts, and any way that you consume podcasts on your devices. Go on ahead and like and subscribe so you don't have to revisit it every time. It goes straight to your phone. I'm Nolan Alexander. We appreciate you joining us here today. If you have an idea for a podcast, shoot me an email in alexa29 at kennesaw.edu. I'd love to get your stories and your thoughts on who would make a good guest. Hey, it could even be yourself. Go ahead and promote yourself. We'll see what we can do. Until next time, I'm Nolan Alexander. This has been Inside the Nest.